Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, author Erin Torkelson Weber joins Nate to talk about her book, The Beatles and the Historians, an analysis of writings about the Fab Four. Nate and Erin discuss how she applies historical methodology to the study of Beatles history and the major narratives that have dominated Fab Four history. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Aaron Torkelson Weber, author of The Beatles and the Historians, an analysis of writings about the Fab Four. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. And so I found this book really fascinating and valuable, but I'm a deep nerd who spends a lot of time reading music books. So I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners, what is historiography and the historical method? And why is it important that it be applied to what we know about the Beatles? Absolutely. Historical method is a subject that's taught to almost every history major. And it is essentially source analysis for historians. So there have been numerous books published really over the centuries of how to determine the credibility and accuracy of differing sources. And we have a hierarchy of sources as historians where we regard certain, certain writings as more credible than others. And one of the basics would basically be that a source intended for private consumption is usually inherently more credible than a source that's intended for public consumption because a source that's intended for public consumption has an agenda behind it. But there are and, hundreds and, of these. Yeah, and to jump in for just a second, with the Beatles, there's always been somebody with an agenda from the very beginning of them telling their story. Right, and that's why I started my book in late 1962, early 1963, because that's when they really become public figures. And that's when the issue of agenda really emerges. But to the second part of your question, historiography is another issue you study as a student of history, and it is how a historical subject has been told over time and the differing versions that we encounter in how a subject has been told over time. And you can see this in any number of subjects, one of the most famous and infamous, of course, would be the American Civil War, where the initial version of the American Civil War following Reconstruction is that it was a war of Northern aggression and had little to do with slavery, whereas that's not what's taught in most, certainly most uh, graduate level or colleges today. That is the initial version that was taught. It certainly was taught in my schools in Texas in the 70s and 80s and took a long time to unlearn that. And something similar has happened with Beatles historiography, or several times actually. Absolutely. And when I looked at Beatles writings, I actually started out as a fan. I didn't have any intention of writing a book. I had a, a one-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. I didn't 
believe I had time at all to write a book. But as I started going through their materials as a fan, I very quickly noticed the the historiographical arc of Beatles historiography and how it followed patterns that I had learned to apply to subjects like Cleopatra or World War One or the American Civil War. And yet you can still apply them to Beatles history, which I thought was frankly awesome. Yeah, it's very cool. And I want to outline the four main narratives that you identify in the book. And we'll come back and talk about each one of them in more detail. But I thought you broke it down pretty elegantly. And that there's four primary historical narratives that have dominated the Beatles story, public story. And the first is the Fab Four narrative, which was you know architected by Brian Epstein and the Beatles themselves and Derek Taylor, which dominated the discourse throughout the 60s until their breakup, at which point John Lennon's infamous Lennon Remembers interview with Jan Winner of Rolling Stone takes over the narrative. And that lasted, that was the dominant thread throughout the 70s in the post-breakup and the when are the Beatles going to get back together period. Then with John Lennon's death, there's the Philip, what you call the Philip Norman shout narrative, which was the first popular biography of the Beatles written post-breakup. Hunter Davis had written one in 1968. It was sort of the authorized biography, but obviously it ended before their breakup. Philip Norman came out with the first big biography, and his timing was excellent right after John Lennon's death. So it sort of set the narrative along with Lennon's uh, pre-mortem interviews and Yoko Ono's public statements. And that sort of dominated through the 90s, through the, into the 90s. And then Mark Lewison comes along as initially just sort of a chronicle of detailed factual information about their recording sessions and their concert appearances and TV appearances. And ultimately in 2010, I want to say, comes out with the definitive Beatles biography, Tune In, which is only up to December of 1962. And he's promised by 2023 to come out with the next volume, which will take us up to 1966. And hopefully we're sort of like Robert Caro readers, hoping that he'll finish the LBJ series before he passes. So hopefully Lewiston will stay healthy and vigorous and do his research and writing and take us to the end of the Beatles story, hopefully by 2030 or so. Um, anyway, but those are, those are the four major narratives. And, you raise questions of bias, and and I think these things were obvious or or were much debated among Beatle fans, and and it tended to ever since the breakup. There have been Paul Beatle fans and John Beatle fans, with the smattering of George and Ringo partisans, but there's been a lot of back and forth. And you know, you raise questions of of bias, partiality, moralizing, and the inability of writers to separate their prefer personal experience of being Beatles fans from uh, their professional role as journalists and historians. Which of these do you feel like is the biggest limitation in our understanding of the Beatles story? I would argue that the biggest limitation has been the issue of partisanship. And the main reason for that is because so many of the foundational works in Beatles historiography that had such an enormous impact on their historiography in many cases were the result of authors who were admittedly biased and have now acknowledged that bias or who have not acknowledge that bias, but demonstrate through the application of methodology serious issues of demonstrating 
bias, such as if you have a contested version of an event where John provides one version and Paul provides another version, they'll only provide John's version, and they won't even acknowledge that Paul's exists. And that's just one example. But you have, again, authors like Norman, authors like Ray Coleman, Wenner in Rolling Stone, who helped helped concretize these these biased interpretations of Beatles historiography. And it's not just an issue of the readers reading biased works and then accepting, you know, shout as a book. It's also how those cornerstone works filter into other secondary works. Because what happens is that if you look in the bibliographies of other books, you will find throughout the 80s and the 90s, and in some cases, even up until today, authors are using Shout or Coleman as an extensive reference for their understanding of the band. Which is a big limitation. And I mean, you know, they're great books, and I think essential for any hardcore Beatle fan to read to understand the group. But you've got to take it with a lot of salt, especially Shout, which, you know, was a great read when I was a kid. But like you say, is incredibly biased in John Lennon's favor, as is the Jan Winner uh, interpretation and the sort of party line that was pushed by Jan Winner and Robert Christgau and so many rock critics, this whole John Lennon was the rock and roller, John Lennon was the genius, you know, Paul McCartney was this sort of pop, lightweight guy who was along for the ride, which is really specious if you understand anything about the dynamics of the Beatles and the obvious objective fact that they were more than the sum of their parts. I mean, the Beatles, each of them produced great work as solo artists, but there's no comparison between the over that the Beatles put out collectively and what they put out with their solo work. And it's um, been gratifying to see Lewis and take some steps to sort of rectify that and add some balance. But let's dive into the four narratives and talk about them. Um, the first one is the Fab Four narrative. So who were the architects of this initial narrative that went along with the Beatles' introduction to the public in Britain and the U.S. in the early 60s? Well, the primary architects would be the Beatles themselves, and you see that in particularly their press conferences as well as their individual interviews, but obviously Brian Epstein, as well as, of course, Derek Taylor, Neil Aspinall, particularly movies like A Hard Day's Night, really, because for some people, that's the first real glimpse they get of the Beatles, and that first narrative that you are exposed to has an enormous impact on it's difficult, shall we say, to dislodge an initial narrative. Like you were talking about how you were raised in Texas in the 70s and the, in the 1970s and the 1980s in regards to the version of the American Civil War that you were taught. It takes time and effort and a willingness to accept new evidence to move away from an initial narrative. And And it's very powerful. And I think one thing that you always need to be reminded of, and I'm glad that you you pointed out that because one answer would be, well, it was Brian Epstein and Derek Taylor, their press officer, were the architects of the narrative, which was sort of a narrative that Epstein was pushing with his autobiography, Cellar Full of Noise, which was ghostwritten by Taylor. But clearly the Beatles had the most time on the mic. And if you know anything about John Lennon and Paul McCartney in particular, they were brilliant, instinctive managers of their public persona from the get-go. I mean, you, you get this perception of John Lennon as someone who could sort of see around corners and who could intuitively size people up and understand how he could 
use them, not in a manipulative sense, but how he could marshal their talents to help his cause and the Beatles' cause. And, and he did it first assembling the band and then assembling the organization around them. And it's really a remarkable feat. I mean, he had a great track record, obviously, with recruiting band members. And then the supporting staff, Brian Epstein and Derek Taylor, these were class acts. These were top flight, even though they were sort of outsiders to the music biz and PR, they were excellent at it. And Brian Epstein, you know, you compare him with, say, Colonel Tom Parker, Elvis's manager, and it's just amazing the difference in class and professionalism and artistry in his presentation compared with the really crass presentation that Colonel Parker engaged in. And so I think it's important that we keep that perspective that Lennon and the Beatles were first and foremost the architects of their own narrative and very, were very conscious of PR from the beginning. And um, let's go ahead and hear uh, a song. I, I meant to do this before we started diving into it, but I decided to use the Beatles Christmas records. These were records that they recorded for their fan club every year from 1963 to 1969. And we'll start with the first one. This is the Beatles' first Christmas message from 1963. And crisp and crispy Brightly showed the booth last night On the musty cruel Henry Hall and David Lloyd Betty Grable too And that was the Beatles' Christmas message to their fan club in 1963. And I picked that just sort of as an example of how they presented themselves to their inner circle of fans, which was an enormous group of people. And we'll see how that changes as the Beatles uh, rise and then dissolve by the end of the 60s. But back to the narrative, it wasn't just their in-house people like their manager and their press person. They also cultivated relationships with journalists like Maureen Cleave of the, I believe the Evening Standard in the UK that allowed them to broadcast their narrative in a really more sophisticated way than pop stars had done previously. Yeah. And again, some of that goes back to movies like A Hard Day's Night. The Cleave interviews in 1966, I think, are some of the most important interviews we have of the Beatles. John's is obviously the most famous, but there's also an aspect of those interviews where they are pushing back against their A Hard Day's Night characterizations. And as I mentioned in the book, you have George condemning the Vietnam War. You have Paul condemning America's racism in regard to African-Americans. And then, of course, you have John's infamous quotes about Christianity. So that's certainly a removal away from the more lovable aspect of the Fab Four Hard Day's Night characters that we had previously been primarily exposed to. And it sets up the transition from the Beatlemania era Beatles to the Sgt. Pepper's Beatles and the you know, there's a theory I read about somewhere, and I can't remember whose it was, but the, the idea is that you can only really be a cultural superstar for about three years, and nobody has done it longer than that. And the way the and, and then, of course, people go, well, the Beatles were an exception because they were enormous superstars from 63 to 1970. And the, the counter argument is, well, actually, there were two Beatles. There was the 63 to 66 Beatles, the Beatlemania mop tops, and then there was 
the Sgt. Pepper rock era Beatles, the, the guys that Bob Dylan, when Paul McCartney handed him Sgt. Peppers for the first time, he goes, oh, I get it. You don't want to be cute anymore. Mm-hmm. And they and those Cleve interviews were a, a way, and I certainly don't think they deliberately engineered the response to those Cleve interviews. I mean, they thought they were doing an interview for a pretty stuffy, upscale English publication that they didn't imagine would have ripple effects in the U.S. the way they did. But when uh, Dateline magazine, a tab- tabloid, runs with the, you know, we're bigger than Jesus quote on the headline, sets off this massive reaction uh, in, in the States in 66 that effectively kills the Beatles as a touring entity. By the end of that tour, they're done with that and and mm-hmm. saw that as ending the Beatles in some ways. But then they reemerged from the chrysalis, fully formed as as Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and then continue for the rest of the decade as alternative culture, you know, hippie culture icons, rather than the sort of whole family entertainers that they had been prior to that. And then the the last piece of this Fab Four narrative was done by Hunter Davis, who uh, wrote the official Beatles biography. How did that impact the narrative and the, and the understanding of the Beatles and pop culture? Well, for one thing, it was impressive for, again, a rock band, a pop band, to get an authorized biography from an author of that level of credibility. And that puts them again in another stratosphere than other pop bands were regarded in at that time. And the authorized biography also emphasizes this switch away from the Hard Day's Night versions of the Beatles. And another one of the crucial things that I found fascinating about the authorized biography is that it impacts their own history as it unfolds. Because one of the individuals who reads the authorized biography is Alan Klein. And it is from that authorized biography, as well as other interviews he was familiar with that the Beatles had done, that he comes up with the idea for how he is going to approach John Lennon in 1969, what his pitch is going to be. Because one of the complaints or issues that crops up again and again and again in John Lennon's interviews in the authorized biography was his childhood and adolescent desperation to be at the very top of the pecking order. And so this is where Klein presumably gets the idea of when he approaches John in 1969, he is going to flatter John and emphasize his belief that John should be and should stay at the top of the Beatles' pecking order. And this was during a time when Paul McCartney had become the driving force musically uh, and administratively with the passing of Brian Epstein. You know, he's directing Magical Mystery Tour. The Sgt. Pepper's album was his concept. The Get Back sessions were his concept. And, and, He's a workaholic and and very domineering, although Lennon, of course, is an incredibly domineering personality as well and was making massive contributions to the music, particularly after their trip to Rishikesh and his explosion of creativity on the White Album. But yeah, Klein very cleverly picked up on that dynamic. And yeah, it's fascinating to think about the reflexiveness of that authorized biography going out there and then being used by Klein to manipulate Lennon and ultimately being one of the key factors that triggers the dissolution of the band because he, Paul McCartney, didn't sign with Alan Klein and that sets up the lawsuit and the breakup. 
And that brings us to our second narrative. But before we get there, I want to play our second Christmas snippet. This is from the Beatles' 1965 Christmas message for their fan club. I believe in yesterday. Don't forget, Christmas is coming. Oh, that reminds me. Let's do a Christmas record. Let's do a Christmas record. Yeah, what should we say? That's um, a good idea. Adelaide. We've got to thank everyone. Remember to thank. Yeah. thank you can't add a little too much because oh, you, you, know, you miss. Well, thank you, Johnny. It's been a nice to know you. Got to thank everyone for all the presents this year. Yes. And, uh, all for buying the records. Yeah, especially the chewed up pieces of chewing gum. <sighs> and, the playing and that was the Beatles' 1965 message to their fan club, something they sent out every year. And now let's get into what you call the Lennon Remembers narrative. This is started by an interview, that an extended interview that John Lennon did with Jan Winner, the publisher of Rolling Stone. That was a Rolling Stone cover story that not only laid down a marker for how the Beatles would be perceived in the 1970s, because it's a, it's a savage break with all the myth-making of the Beatles up to that point. But it also helped establish Jan Winner as a major player in the rock scene and Rolling Stone as the magazine of record for the rock scene. How did those factors go into changing the way the Beatles were perceived in the 70s? Well, for Winner, I think it's important to note, as previous authors have, that he would continue, and really almost up to the present day, has continued to push the Lennon Remembers interview as unimpeachable gospel and the version of the breakup, even when John himself, within a few years, was denouncing its importance and admitting that he had lied about various aspects, including his songwriting partnership with Paul in that interview. And as you hinted at and referenced, a lot of that has to do with that was the interview that made Rolling Stone's reputation. And so while it may have been in John's best interest to later disavow the interview's importance, it certainly wasn't in Winner's. And what were the other architects of the 70s narrative that dominated the discourse? Well, you have also John's interview, the St. Regis interview, in I believe that's 1972, you have a very fascinating interview with Klein in Playboy in November 1972, in which Klein is going to argue every major aspect of the Lennon Remembers version of the Beatles. He says John wrote most of the lyrics. He blames Paul entirely for the breakup. And you also have Apple to the Core, which is published in 1972 and also advocates that it was Paul's refusal to accept Klein as manager, which they portray as unreasonable and selfish, as the reason for the breakup. So now parts of that do start to erode slightly as the 70s goes on. John does, again, disavow some of his statements. He gives more amicable interviews in the mid-70s. He admits he lied in the Playboy interview in 1980. And, of course, you have the other three Beatles then letting Alan Klein out of his contract or, or basically firing him, if you want to call it that, in March of 1973. And at that point, it becomes a lot more difficult for them to say, well, Klein was the right guy for manager after they've fired him and then sued him for $19 million. Yes. As, as McCartney put it later in the anthology documentary, you know, I saved the Bloody Beatles' fortune from Alan Klein, so 
So there. Right. <laughs> and by, yeah, by the mid-70s, it was obvious that Klein was at the very least a questionable actor, if not an outright bad actor in, in the story. And so it was hard for that narrative to be completely sustained. But, you know, that's when I first became aware of the Beatles. And the reputation, definitely the the canonization of John Lennon as the rocker's rocker and and the genius behind the Beatles was very prevalent at the time. And, and McCartney it seemed like the more McCartney was publicly successful with Wings and things like Silly Love Songs, the more trivial he was made out to be. I mean, it was he was just an impossible situation. And, and he later said he, he didn't dare get into a battle of words with John Lennon because that was he knew firsthand what a losing bet that was and felt that nothing he could do uh, would dig him out of that hole. And, and it wasn't until the next narrative emerged that he really felt the need that he had to dig out of the hole because tragically in 1980, Lennon is murdered right as he is doing a new comeback, has just released an album, has thankfully done some massive interviews, Playboy interview that you referred to, and just had done a big PR blitz to try to create this new image of mature John, the house husband, and John and Yoko as this loving couple. And then when he's martyred uh, in 1980, that's really set in stone and Yoko Ono is this incredibly powerful person and she lays out a PR narrative and then right at this time another writer Philip Norman comes out with Shout and you you call this era the Shout narrative tell us about that what points were emphasized and and who was who gained from that and who lost well the Shout narrative is very heavily influenced by the Lennon remembers version of events. And what you'll see is a lot of the major authors of the Shout narrative, like Philip Norman, like Ray Coleman in at least the first two editions of his biography of John, as well as Wenner, will continue to take Lennon remembers unquestioningly. And there are simply significant issues with that. I think I spend at least five or six pages in my book analyzing just Lenin remembers according to historical methods. And there are some significant issues with that interview overall, as well as the various inaccuracies and exaggerations that have been discussed by, by other authors. But the main aspect of the shout narrative is seemingly to, to overemphasize if you want to call it John, and that often comes either unintentionally or intentionally at the expense of the other three Beatles. And we haven't really talked too much about it because the, the anti-Paul tilt in those works is, is rather overt. But one of the major weaknesses of the shout narrative in particular is the dramatic extent to which George and Ringo are marginalized. Uh, absolutely. And this is at a point, both George and Ringo had successful solo careers in the early 70s. George in particular came out of the gate as the most successful solo Beatle with his All Things Must Pass album. But, but after the debacle of his Dark Horse tour, when drug abuse and other factors led him to go out on a tour when his voice was shot, uh, and he had never carried a band as a frontman and lead singer before and, and didn't know how to pace his, his voice like that, and just basically had a bit bad case of what they called Hamburg voice in the early 60s for an entire tour and ruined his public reputation for many years. And so he's at a low until his comeback in the 
late 80s. And Ringo had had uh, some hit singles with George's help and then a very successful solo album, Ringo, but had, you know, kind of gone down the Keith Moon, Harry Nilsson Road uh, and John Lennon's Lost Weekend and, and drank himself out of contention as a pop figure. And so it was pretty easy to kick them while they were down and and only focus on the on the Beatles as if they were a two-man act. And one of those guys was a genius and an immortal, and the other one was this interloper or something. And, and you know, as somebody who's temperamentally inclined to be a John Lennon fan, and John Lennon was my big hero and I was 10 years older when he died, it was so easy to just drink that up and, um, you know, buy, buy the whole thing. And, and the Norman book is a really well-written book, but as you point out, there's no notes, no annotation. How do these books stand as works of history? Quite simply, they're not history. And Norman was a journalist, is a journalist. But if you are not going to have a bibliography at the very least, then I can't remember what historical methods author it is that says, if you can't trust someone's source, then you can't trust the author's conclusions. And if you can't check the source, then then you don't know what's happening. And again, I, I started reading... Beatles books as a fan and encountered Norman's Lennon biography fairly early on. And it was really among my first exposures to the band's story and certainly to John Lennon's story. I had been a casual, casual fan up to that point in time, but reading it as a historian, I would hear Norman or I would see him make an assertion or provide a quote or make a claim. And my thought would be, okay, but who is saying this? When are they saying it? You know, is John saying this in 1965? Is he saying this in 1975? Is he saying this in a private letter? There are so many different aspects that you're supposed to account for when you're looking at a primary source or a secondary source. And when you can't delve into those issues, then you're really flying blind to an extent. And let's jump in and hear another Beatles Christmas song. This is the 1966 version, Everywhere It's Christmas. And this time they actually do a bit of a song. London, Paris, and New York, Tokyo, Hong Kong. Oh, everywhere it's Christmas. And I'm off to join the charm. Everywhere it's Christmas. At the end of every year. Oh, everywhere it's Christmas. At the end of every year. And that was the Beatles' 1966 Christmas message to their fan everywhere fan club everywhere it's Christmas. And I, I wanted to use the 1967 uh, version, which is Christmas uh, record, which has even more of a complete song. But the copyright, the Beatles are really picky about uh, controlling what of their content goes out on what platforms and they, they will bust me if I try to play that one. So I'm going to leave that alone. But the, now we're coming into the fourth narrative. And so as the eighties wind down, Paul McCartney starts to come back and, and point out, Hey, you know, John Lennon picked me to be a songwriting partner. I'm no lightweight here. And, and, and this isn't fair. And, and here's my side of the story. 
one of the vectors, and you, and you call the fourth part the Mark Lewison narrative, and he's obviously the author of the Beatles Sessions and Tune In all those years ago uh, that I just referenced and interviewed, had the great pleasure of interviewing him recently. And Lewison is a whole different animal as far as a writer. He's a legit historian, correct? Yes, and I've seen interviews where he's discussed historical methodology. So I believe he must be familiar to an extent with with the standards that historians use. Uh, for example, he discussed the the issue of the mocking of handicapped individuals that the Beatles and particularly John Lennon engaged in in the 1960s and discussed how you can't you can't apply you can't apply moral judgments from our time period to previous time periods that's that's not how historians do it and also there is excellent methodology for the most part in what i have seen of his notes and tune in he does provide source analysis of particular interviews so i i find a lot of his methodology very good i think it's clear he studied it and another element of the narrative in this point is the Beatles' own version of the story. They finally sorted out all their legal issues. Yoko Ono came to the table. George Harrison came to the table because of financial issues. And they put out a book and a uh, multi-part, I think, 10-part TV documentary telling their own story. How did that impact the narrative? Well, I think the Beatles anthology, because in part to another aspect that helped lead us away from the Lennon remembers and the shout narratives. And that's the concept of historical distance and historical distance is the passage of time that allows for more impartial and objective interpretations of events or individuals. Anthology was really only possible for one thing because of the passage of time, but it also allowed for Beatles authorities and fans to look at the anthology and maybe absorb information that would have been more difficult in the 1970s and in the 1980s. I, I don't think there's any doubt that anthology is an official history, and you should always take any official history with a serious grain of salt, because there are some things they are going to discuss and some things they are not, and there are things they're going to skim over. But it's certainly a valuable source, and it does reinforce what you were getting from primary sources published in this time period, coming from Paul, coming from Mark Lewison, uh, as well as other authors pushing back against the, the oversimplification that had dominated in the, the 80s in particular that John Lennon was three quarters of the Beatles. Because another crucial element of the authorized, or not the authorized biography, sorry, anthology is how much coverage it grants to George and Ringo. Absolutely. And their presence on camera reminds us what formidable personalities they were. And that's another aspect that Lewison really brings home and, and it contrasted with Elvis, who was very much alone, except for a group of sycophants he went to high school with from Memphis, people who couldn't compete with him or really relate to him in any way other than as a patron and, and a, a hero. But the Beatles, Lennon and McCartney had the blessing of having two other strong, charismatic personalities who could share that limelight with them and pick up the slack when they were down. And, and the uh, 
I think it was 2000, I can't remember when it came out, but the George Harrison documentary that Martin Scorsese executive produced along with uh, Harrison's widow. How do you feel that that's impacted the narrative? I think one of the most striking aspects of that for me is it does tend to paint in some aspects a rather rose-colored version of George. Again, by some of the areas it doesn't discuss but it does emphasize his contributions in the studio, which was something that had been seriously overlooked in the 1970s and in the 1980s. And I think that helped, along with some other sources, helped improve George's reputation and his contributions that he made that I think we're really only now really beginning to appreciate in legitimate Beatles history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was very powerful to see Paul McCartney acknowledging Harrison's contributions um, to his work. The song And I Love Her, which features a George Harrison lead guitar line, I mean, that's the hook to the song. And McCartney credits George with coming up with that and points out that, you know, George and Ringo had no lead time, that they would come into the studio and John and Paul would have already worked out the songs between them but they were hearing these songs for the first time. They had to learn the songs, come up with their own arrangement ideas, because if they didn't come up with a guitar part or a drum part, Paul would leap in with his own ideas. And so the notion that people like John Lennon and Paul McCartney would have any patience for fools or losers in the studio is ridiculous if you really think about it. But when you know Paul talks about it in the documentary, it makes it very clear, like, look, these guys were badasses. These guys came in the studio ready. You know, you didn't have a Brian Jones with the Rolling Stone situation where the guy's stoned or messed up. These guys were sober. They were ready to rock. They listened to the tunes and they added parts that made the song greater. Uh, they weren't, you know, looking to flash, play flashy solos or draw attention to themselves. They were looking to make the song better. And Absolutely did. And another thing in that George Harrison documentary that I found very powerful and informative was Astrid Kircher, the woman who uh, gave the Beatles their haircuts and did the first uh, serious photography of the Beatles in Germany, their German friend. She has a series of photos of Harrison and Lennon together in Sue Sutcliffe's bedroom just days after Sutcliffe's death. And Lennon and Sutcliffe had been incredibly close friends and George had been a good friend. And she talks about the way Lennon is in cataclysmic emotional pain. And Harrison, you can see in the photos that Harrison is standing up for his friend with his hand on his shoulder and protecting John. And that's something that I think was lost in in the Lennon Remembers and Philip Norman eras was that Harrison and Starkey were strong, powerful people. And in conjunction with the organization that the, the Beatles built around themselves with Brian Epstein and uh, Frida, their secretary, who had her own documentary recently. I mean, they built this sort of armada of powerful people around themselves, all from Liverpool, all outsiders of the music business. 
And that was a big part of the package. And so that, that's sort of a, a disjunct, but I wanted to get that out there. Um, and let's hear our last uh, song snippet before we go into a little bit more of the histo- historiography of the Beatles. And this is the Beatles Christmas record from 1968, one where they couldn't be bothered to come in the studio together and happy submitted their parts happy separately. Happy autumn, happy Michaelmas, everybody. Happy Christmas, everybody to you. To wish everybody happy Christmas This year of 1968 Going on 69 Happy Christmas, Happy New Year All the best to you from here and that was the Beatles' second-to-last Christmas album for their fan club, the 1968 edition. The 1969 edition is even longer and more chaotic. Once again, they couldn't be bothered to come together. And one point that you make in the introduction that I thought was interesting, I wanted to get you to talk more. As you say the Beatles is the first major historiography, primarily shaped by popular media rather than by a government, a church, or historians. Why is that significant? Well, it was significant for me as a historian because, at least as I was taught historical methods, which wasn't very long ago, uh, approximately, well, 17 years now, the issue was we don't really focus on popular media when we do source analysis as historians. We focus on ancient history, so we're talking about you know, the letters of Cicero, or we're looking at relics that were recovered from Pompeii, or we're dealing with more modern history, World War One. we're dealing with telegrams, or journal entries from soldiers, or censored letters that they're sending back home. And popular media is a part of that. You might talk about, you know, the London Times newspapers that they're publishing in 1914 or 1916 when they're talking about the Battle of the Somme, but we don't focus enough on popular media, in my view, or at least we weren't when I was taking historical methodology. And yet the reality is that's where the vast majority of people get the vast majority of their information. And certainly there was a valuable book by James Start, and it was uh, Historical Methods in Mass Communication, I believe, was the title of the book. And it was one of the very few books on historical methodology that delved into popular media, that dealt with not just books, but also movies or interviews or really all of those particular aspects. And This is something that historians, to an extent, have acknowledged in that even museum studies is an an area where we are supposed to apply historical methodology, but sometimes it doesn't happen properly. So that was one of the really interesting aspects of that for me. Yeah, it's fascinating. I remember uh, somebody saying something about, you know, it's a bit ridiculous to spend this much time talking about John Lennon. This was in the 80s after his death, and and the interlocutor pointed out, well, you know, there's more film footage of John Lennon than any person living at his time, even more than John F. Kennedy. Like these were incredibly well documented lives that fascinated, you know, millions of people all around the world. In the 60s, the only person who could compete with the Beatles for worldwide fame was the boxer Muhammad Ali, and I think. As they recede into the past, it's harder and harder to comprehend just how famous and how significant they were in the 60s culture 
particularly before they had uh, shown their ass to pardon my French, but you know, up to 68 or so publicly, I guess until Magical Mystery Tour at the end of 67, they hadn't made a public misstep. Um, you know, they'd, they'd had the, the, we're bigger than Jesus, which was obviously <laughs> a PR disaster, but for their fans, they hadn't done anything to diminish themselves. And, and going back and reading accounts that were written at the time, it's almost as if people expected them to become sort of philosopher kings, that they expect, were so awed by their artistic and creative growth in their public statements from the Beatlemania era into the Sgt. Pepper era, that people thought that they would just keep going and lead this youth movement that was people imagined was going to change the world. And so it's it's very hard, I think, and important for people to be reminded that in the 60s, you had this massive media monoculture. You had three TV networks in the States. You had two major uh, news magazines that came out every week. You had a major paper in every city, and that was about it. Maybe New York or LA had multiple papers. And so it's hard for us to fathom how famous they were. And to wrap it up, I want to ask you two more things. One is, what do you make of Yoko Ono and Sean Lennon's continuing uh, communications with the public and the way that they pivoted from a sort of sainted John Lennon uh, all through the 80s and most of the 90s. And then when John Lennon starts his solo career, it's much more of a John Lennon had a lot of warts narrative. Well, quite honestly, I'm not very familiar with Sean's work. I don't follow him or Yoko, for example, on social media. I'm not clear on how strongly they have really focused on the the John's weaknesses and flaws issues because you do have areas where Yoko has refused access, for example, or there was an interesting interview again with Philip Norman in The Guardian a few years ago where he said that, of course, he got hundreds of hours of tapes of taped interviews with Yoko when he was doing the biography of John Lennon. And then almost immediately or just a few months before he was supposed to publish, she demanded them back because she said that the biography that she had read the manuscript was mean to John. So what I see is more people who really pushed the Lennon remembers narrative in particular, as well as the shout narrative, I see by them an attempt to implicitly distance themselves to an extent from those narratives, while in some cases not explicitly denouncing it. Absolutely. And and the Sean Lennon interview I was referring to was his appearance on Howard Stern, where he talked about his father yelling in his ear so loud that that he remembers being physically hurt by that and a few other things. And that leads me into my next point. And also there was the recent Imagine documentary that Yoko executive produced, which was a telling of the creation of the Imagine song. And basically the subsects of that was those were all Yoko's ideas and John Lennon was just the vessel for this. And so I found it interesting that she sort of segued from creating a new persona for herself. You know, she was this utter pariah 
in the 60s and 70s, the woman who broke up the Beatles, she was foreign, she was avant-garde, people hated her music. And uh, and then there's a backlash to that because, you know, by the late 70s, punk rockers and others are saying, hey, I loved Yoko Ono. I loved seeing her go up there and, and really freak out the hippies <laughs> with their noise and, and screaming. But, uh, you know, she segued into this, you know, regular on Good Morning America, the beloved martyred widow and, and uh, very interesting transformation of a persona and now more recently she's i think sort of shed the i need john and now i'm yoko and and i'm out there pushing my narrative a little bit but the last thing i want to get your thoughts on is how do you think the beatles are faring in the face of woke culture of of the in the me too era and and with twitter scolds out there i, I was just watching uh, some people on Twitter yesterday uh, condemning John Lennon for his use of the N-word or, you know, alleging that he hit women, which I think, according to Lewison, is a bit exaggerated. And I would say that Lennon was somebody who was ashamed of the way he treated women pretty early on and started condemning himself in public. But now that's been turned against him. How do you think the Beatles are going to fare in this new era? Well, let me let me start off first by saying that I'm not really on social media very much. I have that's a, a good call. account and that's all. <laughs> so I, I just don't have the time. I've got four kids and two of them are under the age of two. So yeah. <laughs> I'm lucky to get 10 minutes to check my email in the morning. Um, but the other issue, again, goes back to historians themselves disagree on the aspect of rendering moral judgments on whether it's okay for historians to do that of people from previous centuries and previous time periods. And some historians argue that we don't have the right and uh, because it's essentially arrogant. And other historians argue we do have the right, but we have to do it reasonably. So I wanted to get that out there first. But I do think part of the issue surrounding the Beatles and particularly surrounding John and this, again, is my experience being born in 1981. My impression of John Lennon in particular that I was exposed to was extremely idealized as a child. And I had some vague knowledge that he was associated with peace. I knew, of course, that he had been a Beatle. I knew he had written Imagine. But the the version of him that I was first exposed to was almost universally positive. And then when you delve a little deeper and you get into issues such as the mocking the handicapped, or again, I, I do think we have Selma Pickles as well as Cynthia Lennon and I think May Pang who all discuss um, being physically struck or, or hurt by John. The issue becomes more complicated. John becomes more complicated. And I think the, there, there's, a, there, there's a possible sense of, I almost want to call it betrayal from younger generations who were initially exposed to the idealized version of John and then come to know him more warts and all. But again, that really wasn't to an extent John's doing because so much of the idealization of him follows his death and it's it's not promoted by John because he's gone. So 
I think it's a very complicated issue, and I'm probably bringing in some of my own perspective, again, as a, as a member of Generation X, Generation Y, I'm right there on that border. So I think for the most part, it's something that the Beatles are going to have to tackle. The Beatles as in the official sort of the Stella McCartney, Downey Harrison official Beatles organization? Well, just how they're, how they're portrayed, I would, I would think it would be best if they just, you know, ripped away the veil and discussed the issues, put those things up so that, again, you don't have that sense that you were sold a false narrative. And then you learn things that obviously they had feet of clay. And that's something that any fan of theirs who has read more than one or two books, unless they're certain books, knows. But I think for, for younger generations, they value that, that exposure, if you will. It's what they're used to. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great to have your insight. Uh, the guest is Aaron Torkelson-Weber, and the book is The Beatles and the Historians, an analysis of writings about the Fab Four. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really feel like this is a very important contribution to the Beatles' historiography. Well, thank you. I was really glad to come on. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when Gary Giddens returns to wrap up his discussion of Bing Crosby with me. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. The Beatles and the Historians, an analysis of writings about the Fab Four, is published by McFarland and Company. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 